and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. Question, what's your most miserable airline horror story? Is it waiting on hold for hours on the airline's customer service hotline, discovering that your luggage is spinning around a carousel 3,000 miles away, maybe being held captive in your seat without food, air conditioning, or bathrooms as your flight sits on the tarmac? Flying, which used to be one of the more pleasant aspects of travel, has turned into one of the most anxiety-producing. And whether it's missing your connection, sitting in an undersized seat, or being stranded in an airport for days, much of it has to do with public policy, specifically the fact that since Congress deregulated the airlines, the quality of air travel has continuously declined, mid-sized cities have been denied service, and labor is being squeezed all as the airlines themselves get bailed out of every economic crisis. But as we'll discover in today's conversation, air travel wasn't always like this, and it can change. My guest is Ganesh Sitaraman. He's a law professor at Vanderbilt University and the author of several books, a board member of the American Prospect, and his latest book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Ganesh Sitaraman, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So before we start talking about how bad it is, let's reflect on how good it was, specifically how our government oversaw air travel before deregulation. Sort of like a public utility, you tell us in the book, following what you call the American tradition of regulated capitalism. Can you break that down? That's exactly right. From the 1930s to the 1970s, the airline system was governed in a very different fashion than how we think of it today. Policymakers in the 1930s recognized that some businesses were just not like others, and airlines, like other transportation infrastructure, were unlikely to be competitive. It was just not going to be the same as a restaurant or a retail store where you would have dozens of competitors operating in a system that worked. Instead, because of their scale and size, airlines were likely to be more like a utility. They were going to be either a monopoly or an oligopoly, which is just a fancy way of saying a few players in the market. And so what the people in the 1930s did in Congress was they passed a law that tried to ensure a system of regulated competition. And what that meant was they wanted enough competition that the airlines wouldn't become monopolies but not so much competition that they would go bankrupt or need subsidies or bailouts. And they hoped that achieving this kind of Goldilocks in between uh, too much and too little competition would create a stable, reliable system that would be able to provide access to air travel throughout the entire country. And the way they did that was through a federal regulatory agency called the Civil Aeronautics Board, which would allocate routes to specific airlines. So it would give an airline a route that they could fly, like San Francisco to Los Angeles, but they would also have a route to somewhere more remote, maybe Seattle to Alaska. And of course, the Alaska route, not going to have as much traffic as uh, the Los Angeles-San Francisco route, but the airline, because it had both, would be able to balance out its profits and still be able to serve the whole country. 
And this system worked pretty well for 40 years, from 1938 to 1978. Over that time period, more and more people were flying. Prices were consistently going down. The airline industry had a lot of innovation. There was a shift from propeller planes to jets, and then from jets to wide-bodied jets. Uh, And by the 1970s, there was really a race to the top for service, with airlines offering, in some cases, pretty wild things in in the cabin. Uh, Piano bars, steak dinners, free alcohol. And and that was the system that we had. Now, it wasn't perfect, of course, but um, it worked pretty well at ensuring that the whole country got airline service in a way that was stable for the industry, reliable for passengers, and that was growing. So those of us who were around in the 1970s remember it as a really turbulent time for the country economically, and that led to an attack on the American tradition of regulated capitalism and the rise of a popular new ideology that glorified free markets and competition. Tell us about the Chicago School and how it influenced the airline industry. The Chicago School is a term for economists and law professors out of the University of Chicago, um, whose ideas influenced lots of academics elsewhere and ultimately policymakers. And their view was that government regulations, uh, public enterprises, that these were bad things generally, and that the market should be let to work, and that you didn't need strong antitrust enforcement, you didn't need significant regulation, you didn't need uh, public action. Uh, Instead, you could privatize, deregulate, globalize, and spend less money as as a government as well, um, and ultimately also get better outcomes. And so when the economic crisis of the early 1970s hit with high inflation, oil shocks, passenger demand down in the airline industry, there was a real opening for these ideas because they offered one diagnosis for how potentially to address the problems. And and that set of views, the Chicago School ideas, um, combined with, perhaps surprisingly, the views of some liberals, uh, Ted Kennedy, his chief counsel at the time, Stephen Breyer, later a Supreme Court justice, uh, Ralph Nader, the consumer advocate. And, and these liberals argued that the government was captured by the airlines, that the system of regulation was a cartel, uh, and that we would be better off if we just let airlines fly wherever they want, whenever they want, and charge whatever they want, and that we would have lower prices, more competition, and no real downsides. And that was the dream that they offered, and Congress bought it, and in 1978, deregulated the industry. How did the big airlines themselves um, feel about deregulation? This is one of the most surprising and interesting things I found in doing my research for the book, which is that the biggest airlines, almost all of them, opposed deregulation. You know, we usually think of big companies as in favor of deregulation, but but they were against it. And you know, in, in one really telling moment, um, an executive at American Airlines named Robert Crandall, uh, who later went on to lead the airline in the 1980s. He said in the debates in the 1970s, he went up to one of the staffers to Ted Kennedy after the hearing and said, you're going to wreck this industry. You don't understand it. And uh, he had much more colorful language than that. But for the radio, I'll leave out the expletives. Um, but, but, but he was 
he objected because he understood that this was an industry that was just more like a utility, that the economies of scale, the network effects, which are all just fancy economics ways of saying bigger is better, were going to mean that unleashed into a world of competition, you weren't actually going to get competition. You were going to get something more like monopolization. You were going to get loss of service to lots of places in the country, um, and that that was going to ultimately be a bad thing for the airline industry and for passengers. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about all that's gone wrong with air travel and late-stage American capitalism. My guest is Vanderbilt University law professor Ganesh Sitaraman. His latest book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. Ganesh, after deregulation, it was a lot easier for small startup airlines to enter the industry and service the most profitable routes, the shuttle from Boston to New York and D.C., for instance. One of the ways the big airlines fought back was by creating airport hubs, or what you call fortress hubs. How do they contribute to the misery of flying today? Well, if anyone uh, is, is like me and you've had the experience of connecting in Charlotte or Dallas or Philadelphia, Atlanta, and you know you're running like a half mile from one gate to the next gate to connect only to see the door shut as you're approaching the gate and they can't open it again uh, because you just missed your flight you know that's the function of these really big airports um and and what's happened in what happened in the 1980s is that after deregulation airlines recognized very quickly that it's far more efficient for them if they concentrate more operations into these big hubs, instead of having a lot of point-to-point service from one city to another direct. And by concentrating in the hubs, uh, it's great for a lot of smaller places. They You can fly to a hub and with one connection, get to thousands of other cities, hundreds of other cities. Um, but for passengers who you know previously might've been able to fly a nonstop flight, it's a little bit more of a hassle. And it's also a problem when you think about resilience and when you think about inequality. Uh, you know, on the resilience front, if one of these big airports gets hit by a weather event like high winds, you know, that can create a crisis throughout the entire airline system for that for that airline. Um, all of their flights around the country could be affected by by losing uh, the hub to delays and cancellations. It's also bad for communities and inequality, because as we've shifted to concentrating more and more operations in these really big airports, a lot of mid-sized cities have actually lost a lot of service. Places like Cincinnati, like St. Louis, which used to be hubs and no longer are. And in those places, one of the challenges you see is, you know, big companies may not want to be there. You may not want to have your convention or your organization's conference in a place where it's really hard to get there from air service, from an air service perspective. So one of the challenges with concentration is that it's really reshaped not just inconveniences for all of us, but in some ways, the geography of equality and inequality and economic growth and opportunity in America. There was a, a really telling paragraph in the book in which you quote former Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia, wishing he had never voted for deregulation because mid-sized cities in states like his 
saw gigantic price rises and, as you say, fewer flights. That's right. There were a number of people by the end of the 1980s, having seen what happened in the industry, uh, regretted their votes. Bird, as one of them, apologized for it. And, you know, one thing that that to me is somewhat surprising uh, and is that even in spite of people apologizing for their votes, recognizing their mistakes, we haven't had much political action to try to fix the problems that, that have been created. What about the fact that flying has become much cheaper and that many more people can fly? Is democratizing our ability to fly not a decent trade-off? It really depends on what people's views of the underlying package of pros and cons are. You know, every public policy has trade-offs. And it's undoubtedly true that prices have gone down since airline deregulation and that more people fly. It's also true, though, that prices were going down before airline deregulation and more people were flying. And it's not entirely obvious that airline deregulation is the thing that is fully responsible for that. Um, It, I suspect, may have contributed in some ways. But even Alfred Kahn, one of the great promoters of deregulation, said 10 years after deregulation that in some places prices had actually gone up and in other places they had gone down. And so it's unclear that we can be so simplistic as to say this was the thing that that led to lower prices when they were already going down beforehand. Now, as for whether that's a good deal, everyone has to make their own judgment about that. You know, there's a lot of trade-offs that we make in public policy, and one set might be to have slightly cheaper prices, um, but to have less regulation on, say, you know, the quality of the experience. Um, is that a trade-off that, that people think is worth it? I, I think people might disagree about that. But you know, where I come down is I think we've gone too far in a place where we're in a place now where service has gotten pretty bad for a lot of people. A lot of people are pretty miserable about it. In some cases, it's leading to passengers on airplanes being frustrated and uh, sometimes getting into physical altercations. Um, and as a country, uh, we've also gotten to a place where The airline industry is now in this kind of boom and bust cycle where they need taxpayer support and bailouts after big crises and where lots of smaller cities and rural places are losing service. And I think those are a lot of downsides that we have to take into account also when we evaluate whether a policy is good or bad. And, you know, I recognize some people will come out in different places on that, but that's the conversation we should be having is, you know, what are the full package of pros and cons for this policy. Let's not just look at one set of positives without considering the negatives. I think the answer to that question is depends where I am when you ask me that question. If if I am sitting <laughs> on the tarmac for eight hours, no, I don't think a cheap flight is worth it. I think that sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> you write that the big carriers um, have responded to deregulation by doing everything they can to gain monopoly power, including becoming de facto banks through frequent flyer and credit card programs. I found that a fascinating aspect of your book. Can you explain what you mean by their becoming banks with those programs? Well, when you think about your airline frequent flyer program, it's not really 
a frequent flyer program in the way that, you know, your local coffee shop might have a deal that says buy 10 coffees and you get the 11th one free. It started that way. But over time, these airline loyalty programs have changed so that they're more now about how much money you spend on a credit card than even about the number of flights you take or the miles you accrue. And what the airlines have done is created these partnerships with the credit cards and banks in which they create points out of thin air. They then sell those points to the credit cards and the banks. They, those folks make money off of swipe fees and staying within the credit card system. Um, and this is a great deal for, for everyone in that system. Where it's not a great deal is in some ways for the general public and for specific consumers who use these cards, in part because, as we've seen earlier this year with Delta, um, the, credit, the, the, the airlines can change the systems, um, how much points are valued at, what their redemption levels are, what benefits you get from having status, how hard it is to get status. And there was a big outrage earlier this year when Delta changed their system to make it a lot harder to get status and to give people less for their status. Uh, On the other hand, it's also not great for the general public because the people who benefit from these systems are the ones who have these very lucrative, beneficial credit cards. But what those credit card systems do is they actually mean higher prices for everyone in the economy by a couple of percentage points because the credit card companies charge swipe fees every time you swipe your card. And the small businesses or mid-sized businesses include that into the cost. So we pay higher prices for everything. And if you don't have one of these fancy credit cards where you're getting points and rewards on the back end, um, you're paying higher prices without getting those benefits. And that disproportionately hurts people who are less wealthy. Um, And I think that's a real problem also as part of this system. After every crisis, it seems, 9-11, 2008, financial meltdown, COVID, the airlines cry poverty and Congress, as you touched on before, bails them out. Why is that, considering all the money they make being monopolies or oligopolies? Well, you know, this is similar to a lot of other industries, and I think it's in some ways proof that airlines are more like utilities than ordinary businesses, you know, and they are too important to fail uh, because they are such a critical part of our transportation infrastructure. And so what that means is when there is a big crisis, demand drops considerably, you know, after COVID, for example, people weren't going to fly for a while. And, And when that happens, the airlines are in a place where they're not going to be making money off of off of full flights or even partially full flights uh, with people not flying. Same kind of thing happened after September 11th. And so they need support so they don't go under. They go to Congress and Congress is happy to oblige, again, because they are so important and critical as an industry to our economy. You know, the CARES Act, which was passed by Congress in order to provide uh, funds in, in part to the airline industry, um, was extremely important because had they not come in and done the the uh, support program for the airlines, the airlines would have probably laid off thousands of people. And then when they were trying to build back up after people wanted to start flying again, they would have been 
even more of a crisis than we saw last year with probably many more cancellations, delays, and other challenges because you can't just hire someone off the street to be a pilot or a flight attendant or, you know, to work uh, in, in an airport um, in any in any capacity. It takes real training. Uh, these are a lot of jobs are, are really high-skilled jobs like in maintenance. Um, you have to know what you're doing. And that's a real challenge then if you're in this cyclical kind of industry when there's a crisis. So I think the challenge we have is how do we have, how do we get an airline industry that we recognize is is too important to fail, but then we need to build in some rules so that in the good years, they're, you know, saving for the rainy day so that taxpayers aren't on the hook when when things go south. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today, we're talking about the pathetic state of air travel and unregulated capitalism. My guest is Vanderbilt Professor of Law, Ganesh Sitaraman. His latest book is Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It. So let's talk about fixing flying. One of your ideas is a third way, which which you call a public option that combines private carriers with a nationally owned carrier. Can you can you unpack that for us? How how and why might this work? Well, so one of the things I try to do in the book is explore different ways we might think about organizing airlines, in, in part to really open up our imagination as people who think about policy and and to open up our imagination in a public conversation about how to fix flying. And so I talk about some of the approaches that we might have that take seriously that airlines are more efficient if they're bigger. And that's very different than thinking about competition and trying to have hundreds of competitive airlines flying around, which you know we don't have even in a deregulated world. Um, so what does it mean to take concentration seriously? I, you know, I explore the idea of a national airline, which some countries have, of a private single national airline that's that's regulated, um, and then an approach that Australia tried before it deregulated airlines called the two-airline policy, and that was one public airline and one private airline, and they would compete against each other. So you get a lot of benefits of scale in having two airlines, um, but you also still have some competition so that you don't get a single public airline that gets sclerotic and has bad service or a single private airline that is a monopoly and raises its prices. Um, and so that's one approach. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that approach or, or nationalization or anything like that is is likely in the short or medium term in the United States. But I think it's important for us to think about what the pros and cons of these different kinds of ideas are, because they help us see where the opportunities might be for more moderate change. You also mentioned that you'd like to see fewer of these fortress hubs. Does this mean building new airports, forcing more big carriers to share their hubs? How might we achieve this? Well, one thing that's interesting is that the concentration at specific airports, you know, 70, 80% by one airline is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, during regulation, that just wasn't the case. The biggest airlines at the biggest airports had more like 25 or 30% of an airport, not 70%. And so I think one option would be to put in place some policies to restrict the dominance that an airline could have at a single major airport and 
one thing that would mean is you would get a lot more competition instead of having 70% of Delta or American or United at a certain airport, you'd have maybe 30%, but the other 70% would be filled with the other big carriers. And so I think you'd get more competition between big airlines, and that would open up a lot more possibilities. It would also mean that the airlines would likely have to create more hubs in more places because they're going to have a lot more capacity and they'll want a bigger network. So instead of having just two or three hubs, uh, they might have 10 or 12 hubs. And that would also be a great thing for those other cities. You tell us that reforming the industry is actually within our power as voters. I'm not sure I know anyone who's ever tried to convince their reps in Congress to improve the airline industry. You think that should change? Yeah, I think the way we get change is by people getting angry and calling their members of Congress and telling them, that they want this fixed. And that's an important component because members understand things that are popular. And I think this is an area that a lot of people, you know, Republicans, Democrats, people in rural areas and small cities and big cities, uh, you know, anyone who flies has some gripe about how this has gone in, in recent years. And I think that means there is a wide coalition of people who could get behind making change in this area. And part of that starts by making known that, you know, this is a topic people care about. So this holiday, this is the holiday season, and I assume you'll be flying. Do you have any advice for the rest of us on how to cope and get to where we're going comfortably? Well, the first thing is be prepared. And I'd say be prepared mentally for delays, for cancellations, for all kinds of problems. Um, if you're mentally prepared, it'll make it a little bit easier when... Uh, those things happen. Second is be practically prepared. You know, bring a snack, bring your water bottle and fill it up after security, uh, bring a book and, you know, be ready for if you are delayed. Um, those two things I think are are maybe the biggest you can do to be ready if there are problems that, that happen. The other piece of advice is don't blame the people who work for the airlines or who are at the airport. You know, it's not their fault that you're delayed and they're really trying their best to make things better. Um, you know, it's not it's not uh, a, it's not appropriate to 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 yell at them or treat them rudely um, any time of year, especially at the holidays. They're they're trying their best to, to make your travel experience as as uh, smooth as they can make it. So as I was reading your book and this is the last question, I was imagining that you got the idea to write it while you were enduring some really horrible flight. Is that true? What was your most miserable flight? I, I wish that were true. It would make for a, a much better story, uh, but but it, but it's not actually how it came about. In, in a way, it came about from a mix of you know, teaching regulation and also um, the last few years of just seeing all of these cancellations, the experience with COVID and the, the support programs, and realizing, you know, people don't really know the story of airline policy and how we got to where we are and why flying is so miserable. And I thought a lot of flyers like me would want to know that story uh, because it's really interesting. And hopefully the story also has a really important lesson, which is that we're not powerless and we don't have to accept the way things are. Uh, we can push to make them better.
I want to thank you very much for talking with you today, talking with us today. My guest today has been law professor Ganesh Sita Raman. I want to thank Matty Dunn for his tech work on the show. Why Flying is Miserable and How to Fix It was recently published by Columbia Global Reports. This is Ira Wood with a lowdown on why getting there has become the worst part of travel, one interview at a time. Bye for now. Thank you.